This is Interviews with Technical People with John Robertson and James Havio, a podcast where we interview technical people in STEM fields to discuss the past, present, and future from their perspective. And today we're joined by Chris Hazard, founder of HikingGuy.com. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me. So I just want to say real quick, if you're in Southern California... And this sounds familiar. <laughs> That's there's probably a reason why. If you're not from Southern California, we were just talking about this. You may be wondering who is hiking guy or what is hiking guy. So it's what I use for virtually every hike that I do. I go there first. Um, and I guess Chris, what I wanted to start with is how did this happen? How did you become hiking guy? How did this entire enterprise start? And maybe we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't grow up with like an outdoors background. Um, you know, looking back, I wish my family like took me to national parks every year, but I was, uh, I was not that kid. I actually have a technology background. I, I, I got a Commodore VIC 20 computer, I think when I was like eight years old, which tells you that I'm about a hundred years old. Uh, but, uh, I, I was always into computers and everything. And, um, when I got out of school, I had a job in, in major, big computer systems and UI UX. And then I, I worked uh, at an agency. I started an agency with, with two other people, a digital agency in the early 2000s. And we did websites and, and mobile apps. And back then it was sort of the wild west of, of everything. Um, and I was working at the startup and I was just burning myself out working nonstop. Uh, and I decided to start going out hiking and camping on the weekends. I was living in New York City, and I would go up to the Catskills or the Adirondacks or the Whites um, up by you, James. And um, I would go hike, and I found that that was what I needed to just sort of get my mind straight after staring at a screen for hours and hours and you know dealing with all of the kind of uh, small business drama and and you know, ups and downs and everything, just unplugging was, was key. Uh, and then fast forward to 2012, I moved out to Los Angeles to start an office out here for our, our main offices in New York. And I really got back into hiking and people would come out from the New York office and they'd want to go do a hike, go hike Mount Baldy or something that they read about or the Hollywood sign. And originally I had like these cut and paste emails that I would send where I had, um, I take pictures of the junctions and I'd plaster a big red arrow on it to say, you know, go left because uh, the, the problem that I, I knew at the time that I was unintentionally solving for was that when you get a guidebook, which was what people had in the old days, you'd buy a guidebook at a bookstore and it would have, you know, a few paragraphs about a trail and it would say, you know, make a left at the juniper trees and there'd yeah. be a hand-drawn map and it wasn't too... Um, wasn't too helpful unless you really spent the time to decode it. Uh, and I knew that the people who were coming out to do it were younger and they had, you know, the normal younger people attention span. So the big red arrow plastered on an image was good. Um, and I would share these with through email and then um, somebody, I, I might've thought or somebody just said like, you should just put this on the web so other people can use it. Uh, and then it just sort of grew from there. I ended up, um, getting rid of or, or kind of getting out of the agency worlds to pursue this full time. Um, just before COVID, of course, when the world crashed down. Um, hmm. But uh, I, I started doing it and I also started doing um, in-person guided hikes too. So people would say, yeah, I saw your guide online, but I'd like you to come with me. So I went through that whole process of, you know, basically gaining the skill set of, what like wilderness medicine and CPR and, and just managing people. Um, I had had a part-time job in my twenties as a tour guide in New York city. I would take people on walking tours. So I had a little bit of experience there, but, um, uh, different urban jungle versus, uh, you know, Southern California forest. But, um, so this really just yeah. started out as like a guide for your, your friends and coworkers. And it, it's turned into your full-time gig. Yeah, totally. So when I when I got out of the agency worlds, I just decided to pursue this because I, I loved it. And it was a nice melding of being outside. And also, I, I got my fix of, of toys and technology, you know, because I'm 
I have a website and I'm video editing and all that stuff. Did I hear it right that you only kind of started doing it full time a little bit before COVID, like just a few years ago? Yeah, yeah. So 2019, um, my partners and I just decided to call it a day uh, with the agency because it was just it's just a lot of stress running a business that's project based. Um, and I, I started doing this full time. Um, I had been working on the website consistently, but I, it would be a weekend thing, you know, just mm-hmm. to I'd get out on a Saturday or Sunday and go for a hike. Um, and then I just decided to do it full time. Uh, and uh, then COVID, you know, unfortunately kind of put a dent in, in the plans because I couldn't do guided hikes anymore because there was a state of emergency in California and I couldn't get insurance. And um, it, it also had some economic impacts in terms of, of uh, how I make money through through commissions, affiliate commissions and, and that stuff. But it's it's recovering. We're, we're good. We're okay now. So hopefully, knock on wood, we can keep going. Did you see more use of the website uh, during COVID? Because I know out, out in New England, there was more hiking during COVID than there was yeah. before. Yeah, for sure. It, it definitely, there was definitely a major hiking bump once they let people go back on the trails here. Um, the, the problem for me in terms of, of how this was as a business is that all of this, I make, I basically make my money um, recommending products from, for REI. Um, and I don't work for REI. I just recommend them and I refer people there. REI took a major hit because all the stores closed down. So essentially all of my commissions or all my income got cut in half and Amazon and different things. So, um, so it was good and bad. So a lot of people I think found the website, but, but monetarily it was a little bit of tough, but um, I think things are, are kind of back to normal, but it's, it's good too. Cause I think a lot of new uh, people were exposed to the trails and, and getting out. And I, hopefully there's more people enjoying it now. So. I have one question that's kind of along the same lines, and I'm just curious about it. So you're, as far as I can tell, a one-man show, right? Um, and yes. as you said, you do you do these guides for hikes locally and, and some a little further away. How did you get, that's an interesting question, but how did you get as big as you are, at least in the sense that when I, I tested it, like yesterday I Googled Mount Baldy hike, and you were the top of the search results. You were Whatever your search engine optimization is, it's good. You're number one. I tried for Cucamonga. You're number one. Uh, Gorgonia, you're number one. So, like, what do you think it what it is about what you're doing that just made your content so accessible or, or popular? Yeah, a couple things, I think. Um, first, you know, I had a technical background, and I had that, you know, I know how to program in PHP, and I know how to code themes and do things like that. So... I basically made my own theme for the website and I made that so it was optimized for speed and, and SEO. And if you're familiar, if you live in the coding world and you do WordPress, there's like a lot of bloat with that. And then, you know, people put ads on the site and it just slows it down. So I made it essentially a, a good user experience, right? There's no ads, there's no sort of BS on there. It just sort of loads up quick. Um, and I also read through all of Google's webmaster guidelines, just made sure I checked off all of the technical stuff. And it's interesting from Google because they say, you know, basically create good content. If you have to sum up their 500 page PDF file, you know, just make good content. And that's what I focused on. Um, You know, there were other guides out there, other websites, but I, I had probably the same problems that other people did where, it, it wasn't really enough information for me to feel confident in the hike. And I think for people, especially people who are starting, I think people always will benefit from, from having a little bit more information about what to expect, uh, especially if they're apprehensive or the anxiety, like we were talking about Matt Whitney before, you know, people get scared. There's, there's a lot of unknowns on there. Um, and the more information that I can give in a, in a manner, like I always try to, you know, harking back to the way I used to share this originally, I always try to make my voice as if I'm sharing this with a friend. Like, how would I write this if I'm writing an email to a friend about how to hike Mount Whitney? So I, I try to just be down to earth and, and matter of fact. Um, and I think that all helps in terms of, of SEO and finding uh, the site. But it, it's it's a bit of an up and down because Google has algorithm changes. And then, you know, 
one day I'll be getting thousands of hits. And then the, tomorrow there's like half of that. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's an up and down thing, uh, but hopefully in the long run, having good content or having the best content will, will get me closer to the top. And I'm glad to hear that I was at the top when you search for those things. So, um, I, I'd never heard of your stuff because I love out East, but John sent me there and I've read a few of yours and I, I enjoyed the way it, you know, flowed like a story and there was a, a linear, you know, theme to it and even time wise. Um, did you feel that when you would start the hikes that this was missing and you kind of had to kind of go around in the dark and find it your own way and thought, you know, people are going to need this and it doesn't exist currently. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, that, I kind of touched on it earlier, but like, you know, you'd, you'd get a guidebook in the old days and it was, there was always a certain style to a hiking guidebook and it was sort of flowery language narrative about, you know, several paragraphs about what the hike was like. And they talk about landmarks that were, you know, maybe referred to like a species of tree or something like at this Oak Grove, you know, go Northwest. And I realized that most people don't think like that you'd really have to decode that information into something more like a cue sheet. And, and I'm a big bike rider. I used to race and, and do all kinds of things, but I know for like bike touring or for bike rides, you have like a little cue sheet, you know, mile 7.7, .7, make a left on main street, mile 10 point, this make a right on whatever. Um, and that's how people think it's a very linear process to navigate a trail. Um, and I wanted the experience of the guides to be like that. And I didn't want to have to ask my audience to have to decode my, my prose about the, yeah. the Oak trees and the, you know, the Northwest yeah. facing slopes and all that stuff. So well, at, that, at that point, your content's not as useful and people won't use it. Yeah. 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 One other question that I had kind of thinking back to like, let's just say it's a normal weekend. If me and my wife are going to go hike, one of the reasons I find your guides really useful is because right up at the top, you have these key metrics that I love. And, you know, we're, we're, we're both scientists, me and James. So, um, but I know the two that I always look at right away when we're just determining what hike we're going to do are the total distance and the elevation gain. And from that, I find I could find most of what I need to do to decide, oh, is today the day for it? And then maybe, you know, the third would be like weather, but that, you know, I need to go to a different source for. So like, my question for you is how did, how did you pick which metrics to display on all your hikes? And like, which ones do you use if you're going to decide what you're doing on a given Saturday? Yeah, I, I use the exact same ones. I use elevation gain and distance. Um, and then I'll probably, the one thing I, I maybe should have, but I don't um, like a, a figure for how much elevation is gains per distance, which you can, if you're reasonably intelligent, you can just do the math in your head. And it doesn't always tell you the true story because it could be flat and then there could be like a really steep climb at the end. So right. it's not super useful, but those are the ones I look for. And the reason why they're at the top is because that's how I thought about hikes. I would do the same thing. I just wanted something scannable. I didn't want to have to read through a couple paragraphs to decode what this was all about. I just wanted the kind of like top line deets right away. The funny thing about that is you've actually spoiled me because now if I'm going to go do a hike that you don't have a guide for, often those aren't very easily accessible. And like you said, you need to go dig all the way down somewhere to figure out um, what those pretty straightforward values are. Oh, and one other thing that I, I really like about your guys that you often have, um, you, you mentioned kind of like the gradient, right, or how, how steeply the trail might rise. I often like when you put those um, like uh, elevation maps on or, or basically oh, a cross section of like distance and uh, altitude is a function of distance. Those are really nice too. And those are really hard to find if they're not on your guides. Um, because I'm just thinking well, of all these things that I look at. Yeah. Well, you talked about those details. I want to do a shout out again for East coast. There's a site called main trail finder, which is kind of crowdsourced. It's got a couple hundred um, sites or a couple hundred. Yeah. Locations with much less detail, but like half of what they have is just those quick details and then just a couple paragraphs. And uh, yeah, when I'm going through a hike to pick, I was doing it today uh, for a hike, you know, close to home. And, you know, that's that's the easiest way to, to get into it without reading a story, you know. Is... Yeah. 
Yeah, I used to hike when I lived back east. I used to hike with the AMC, those you know AMC guides from the White Mountains and everything. And those were like big, you know, it was like the Bible. It was like a huge yeah. book, you know. But it's intimidating. But. Um, okay. This is a slight change of topic, but one question that I did want to get in, just kind of thinking about not just your your guides, obviously, but like you've been doing this way longer than, than we have, and I feel like you have a good view of what the landscape is, no pun intended, of uh, being outdoors. One thing that I've been interacting with a lot recently is how do you feel about the recent trend in which a lot of popular hikes, for example, Half Dome or Angel's Landing, they're now requiring like a lottery permit system for day use. And then James and I were planning to do Whitney as well. That's another lottery system that, you know, was pretty, pretty tough to get into. We wound up getting a slot, but you know, it, it took a lot of work. So how do you feel in general about that trend? Well, I mean, aside from the obvious fact that it's inconvenient, if I just want to get my car and go like Mount Whitney or whatever, I, I think it's a good thing. Um, I think overcrowding is a massive problem that we have and it, it leads to like think of angels landing like when the people are walking up on that chain section and there's like crowds and they have to pass or even half dome um I, i've done half dome many times and when i get to you know the part where you're going up the the, the rock face of, of half dome doing it with like a few people on there is is a pure joy doing it in a line of people is is horrible it's just not even fun and, and i've actually got up there and i've seen like the traffic jam on there and i just turn around and go back because i'm just like i don't want to deal with this and, and one time i was doing it just a little diversion here but one time i was doing it in a line and a person maybe two or three people up from me if you're not familiar with it it's a very steep i don't know what the angle is 45 50 degrees on on a granite face and you have two metal poles and wood two by fours um on the grounds and you basically people walk up one side and back down the other. But, um, I, I, I don't know, maybe four or five people up for me, uh, somebody freaked out and they tried to come down, they knocked somebody else over and they knocked me over in the process. And here I am hanging on for my life. On, and, and if you've never done it before, the poles aren't and the boards aren't secured into the, the granite. You can pull them out. Um, you know, the boards wobble around, and here I'm hanging on because of that. So, you know, I think I think having permits is smart, and and I really wish I really wish it would lead to more funding for parks. That that's that's where I hope everything like this is going. It's a resource that was sort of fringy before. Now the outdoors with a combination of things, COVID, and just general awareness and social media enjoying the outdoors is becoming more mainstream. And I, I, I just hope that this means that we can get trails restored, maybe build new trails. That's, that's a bit of a stretch, but um, all these things I think will help alleviate overcrowding and, um, you know, make it a better experience for everyone. And I think right now permits is the only way to do that. Uh, I know there was a, there's a store, there's a hike down in San Diego um, Cedar Creek Falls, they had a huge problem a few years ago with people uh, overcrowding and people going out when they weren't supposed to and, and people died in the heat and they went to a permit system and it's been night and day because when you do the permit, like you guys know for Whitney, you have to basically read through like a whole disclaimer and they, I mean, you could do it without reading it too, but um, you know, you, you kind of have to check off some boxes before you get into it and there, there has to be some sort of level of awareness uh, so I, I think that's a good thing, um, but you know it's inconvenient. But I, I think well, ultimately well, quick, more, more will be like that. Sorry. Well, one thing you mentioned. No, no, it's fine. Um, you mentioned that you thought it was unlikely that something along the lines. It was unlikely that we would make new trails. Uh, why is that? I, it it does seem like we don't make new trails at a very fast rate, but it would seem like that's one thing that could alleviate the traffic jams. Yeah, I mean, overall, if I, if I had to give a synopsis of, of trails and hiking and, and land management, um, everything is underfunded, especially federal lands, so like national forests, even national parks. Um, 
and you, you see the evidence of it very easily. Like if you go into our national forest here in Los Angeles, Los Angeles National Forest on a weekend, all the dumpsters are overflowing because they can't take the trash out quick enough. Like it's, it's small clues like that, that turn you on to it. But, um, you know, I, I just don't think there's the money there. And I don't think, um, you know, un- until there's some sort of level of awareness or activism to get that going, I don't think they're going to build new trails. And there's plenty, plenty, plenty of trails that are existing already on maps, especially down here uh, in Angeles National Forest that are just totally overgrown. And it wouldn't be too crazy to go in there and restore them. Um, but but if you look, I, I just did a, a guide to um, a hike here called Condor Peak, and the trail is in great condition. And it was restored by a local trail crew of volunteers, you know, over a long time. So the Forest Service can't even restore the trails on their own without the help of volunteers. So I think it's just a matter of funding. And if, if people demand that there's trails and they demand, you know, if there's, there's too much of a demand for permits and you can't go, you can't get into Yosemite, you know, at some point, hopefully there'll be more funding. But I just... I. I think with everything that's going on in the world today, that's probably a far ways off. Um, and, okay. you know, There's but I wish I can, I can dream. Ahead. Sorry. There's a surprising number of trails where I am that were built by the CCC back in the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, sometimes it catches me off guard walking up these stairs that were built, you know, by, you know, probably teenage kids, you know, in the 30s. Um and I, they've been slightly maintained, you know, like cut down trees that fall across, but not a whole lot of maintenance since then. And it feels like yeah. there's a lot of manpower to build a trail. Yeah, totally. And that's that's how it is out west too. A lot of the national parks were all built by CCC, and you know, I, I that's one way you could go about getting this going. You could have a, a modern day CCC. The problem now is there's too many jobs, right? And people aren't taking jobs, but to ask somebody to work for 15 bucks an hour with a, you know, a pickaxe and a trail might be tough, but, um, but yeah, when you look at what the CCC did, which at the time was controversial because it was, you know, the, the Roosevelt's new deal and it was socialism and it was taking the country in a very different direction. But when you look at that investment in whatever it costs to pay those guys, just think about every almost every trail in the, the parks out west is like a CCC trail or, or has been maintained by the CCC. Look at the return on investment for that. Like, look at the millions and millions of people that go to Yosemite to hike on those trails and, and the, the income that that generates for the park service or whatever it might be. So I think in the long term, having something like the CCC again would would be a good investment in, in tax dollars. But I just I don't. I don't think our climate, uh, our political climate can think past like the next two seconds, unfortunately, but, (laughs) you know, (laughs) speaking of Yosemite, I, there's a question that I wanted to ask you. You put out a really interesting video. I thought, uh, it was probably several months back about kind of what you thought the future of communication in the outdoors is right. We're, we're in this time now where there's some availability of satellite communications, but I think I would argue it's it hasn't fully matured yet, right? Like, I don't have one, and I'm in the woods a fairly decent amount. Um, and then there's these things that I think you pointed out are converging, right? One is that the proliferation, the proliferation of satellite systems, but then number two also, you know, the more I go into the woods, the more I see these big fake metal poles disguised <laughs> as trees that are really, you know, 5G towers. And so more and more, I find myself just having a cell signal out in the woods. Yep. So, you know, where do you think all this is heading as far as the ability to communicate and, and just stay safe out in the wilderness? Yeah, well, I mean, just to preface that, I, I think having a satellite communicator, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically a little device that you can use to send text messages back and forth um, using the Iridium satellite network, so low Earth orbit satellites. Uh, and you can also call SOS. Um I think that has been one of the greatest things to come to the outdoors. I remember when they first came out, um, the satellite communicators, and before that there was still around, it's called a PLB, a personal locator beacon, which is based on technology um, that 
that sailboats used for a long time, EPIRBs, which is a different different frequency network, but it, and it's not as sophisticated as the inReach, but it's been around for a while. And I remember when it first came out, and I remember when was that? Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> um, probably fifteen years ago. I think maybe PLBs were out. Um, okay, but I remember people. And it might have been something I read in like Outside Magazine. People, stories like horror stories, like oh, somebody was camping at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and they they called for a rescue because they had a stomach ache, you know. And it was like there's going to be this whole this whole level of misuse of emergency. People are going to just be tired and call for a helicopter. But I don't think it's it's really like that. I think overall it's a great thing to have. I think the the fact that you can do two way communications with with an inReach is massive because then you can say, you know, I see a forest fire. Should I keep going on this trail or turn? Like I, I can, you know, have a little bit more information or, 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 you know, more resources available. But eventually I think with, uh, to, to get back to your original question, to, with things like Starlink, right? So global high speed, low earth orbit coverage and, and Starlink, th- there's other ones. They're not as obviously advanced as Starlink is now, but th- there will be more. Um, and what it's going to do is it's going to open up and, and your cell phone will be able to connect to that eventually as well. And eventually there's not going to be any backcountry in terms of communications, right? We're going to be able to sit in the middle of Alaska and look at, uh, you know, stock prices or whatever we'd want to do, you know. Uh, and and I, I, think, I, I think it's going to be a bit of a double-edged sword ultimately it'll probably be a good thing because being able to communicate and get information will definitely help people, right? If I can be in the middle of Alaska and I can get a detailed Doppler weather report or information about a forest fire's progress, that that's huge. I mean, that's a lifesaver. And I think that far outweighs the downsides where it's like people are going to be talking on their phones, people, you know, more places are going to be opened up to social media or whatever it might be that that's kind of happening already. Um, so, I think the, like what you mentioned about seeing like seeing fires, for example, mm-hmm. or being out and having an advanced awareness of the weather. That's great. You know, that will save lives if that really does uh, become a common thing. Where we are right now, at what point? This is, I guess, this is just asking for your opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point do you think someone is going out in the woods or in the outdoors enough? that they should think about getting a satellite communicator of some sort, whether it's an inReach or something else, you know, because again, for me, you know, I'll go hiking maybe twice a month for us. It doesn't seem like a move, but how, how many times per month would be that kind of magic number where it's like, okay, now this would be a smart idea. Yeah. I'd, I'd say, and of course, you know, it, if, if you get hurt on your first time out and you're in a life threatening situation, the answer is one. Um, but and that's a thing you never know. But I mean, I think if you hike, you know, maybe three or four times a month and you're going out of cell phone range, it, it probably makes sense. Uh, and, and it's there's there's two types that of things you can get. And we I kind of touched on before, but there's a PLB, which is essentially a one way beacon. And you, you press a button and it connects with um, basically the, the an Air Force dispatch and it works all over the world. And it sends a GPS signal, and then they come to that GPS position. So if you hike infrequently and you still want that protection, a PLB is great because it doesn't have any subscription costs. You just buy the hardware. Battery lasts five years, and you can replace the battery for like 100 150 bucks after that. But that's a great thing just for some peace of mind. If you want to be able to text back and forth, you want to get weather reports, you want to have like interactive, an interactive SOS um, situation, which is definitely more helpful where, you know, let's say you, you think you had a heart attack or you're some sort of condition and you, you want some sort of diagnosis, uh, some sort of information about it, you can go back and forth on the, on the SOS with a communicator, which is much more helpful. And the, the only time, three times I've actually activated my SOS uh, on my inReach, and that was always for somebody else. So, you know, it might not just be you, it might be somebody else who has a problem and you could potentially save a life by paying whatever, 15 bucks a month for a basic subscription for an inReach. So 
for for me that's a no-brainer but i i've thought about that a little more i often go hiking you know an hour from my house in maine and you know they're they're little mountains it's not far from home it doesn't feel like much but sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot to get out of cell phone service and then we were doing some spring hiking and and took a tumble recently a few weeks ago and saw two other people on the trail all day and it was that thought of like this could have gone much worse maybe i should have had a device you know before i was like yeah you know we'll we'll see people and i always have the feeling i i feel probably more safe on a bigger mountain that's more popular because i know there's more people to see if something goes wrong yep um but recently i've done hikes where there's not a lot of other people and it doesn't take much of a fall before you're a little shook up yeah you you just you don't know you know when you think of an emergency you think of something catastrophic where you're hanging off the edge of a cliff or whatever but like i hiked um yesterday i two things happened that could have been potentially bad i i was walking around a corner i almost stepped on a rattlesnake so that would that would be something and you know i was watching i didn't have headphones and everything i was actually just walking around a corner and there he was in the trail um and also i was bushwhacking and i got whacked in the eye by by a shrub and i couldn't see out of my one eye and i was thinking man if some reason this came right across my face i would be blind right now and i i couldn't do two-way communications on my device because i couldn't see but i could hit the sos button interesting um, uh, Chris, I was actually going to ask, but you brought up the topic. Uh, <laughs> scenario, what do you do if you're out, say, five to ten miles into a hike, not heavily traffic, don't have an SOS device, and you get bit by a rattlesnake? And I ask that because what you described, nearly stepping on a rattlesnake, I think that's happened to me or my wife probably three to five times uh, in not that large of a time span. So it can't be uncommon, right? I'm sure it happens. Like what, what is the guidance on what to do in that case? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a huge expert in terms of the, the medical, you know, the, the ins and outs of, of, of the, the, the bite. But I think if you don't have it, you just boogie as fast as you can back to the trailhead. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I, I do know that like sucking the poison out and like the tourniquets, those aren't, real things okay your advice is just get home as quick as you can or get to the, yeah. get to the car i mean it's it's That's... not it's not immediately fatal for most rattlesnakes um okay. you, know, you do have some time i think it swells up your your flesh starts to die so the the, the sooner you can get back i'd probably run i could <laughs> Okay, that's that's basically the where we often get to when we run through these scenarios. But I'm yeah. glad to hear that that's uh, not totally off base. Or, or better yet, um, get a satellite communicator. There you go. There you go. Um, um, yeah, there's a lot of rattlesnakes out here. I, I don't know if yeah. I um, come to California to go hiking anymore. We might see a rattlesnake, James. There's rattlesnakes in the east. Um, I haven't seen one yet. I used to see them in Pennsylvania all the time. I don't know if I've seen them okay. up in New England, but yeah. Um, another thing, we, another I, thing we'd I, like to ask you, and it's it's not high tech, but um, something you deal with a lot is uh, a lot of your big hikes are uh, oxygen uh, low oxygen environments. Um, yes, and you talk about that a lot on your site, and. I live at 200 feet elevation and I can hike, you know, pretty easily to three or 4,000 feet where that's not an issue. Um, and I'm planning to, to go to 14,000 feet this year for the first time ever. And, uh, I don't even know how I'm going to react to low oxygen environments. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just curious your thoughts on all that. You know, I've, I've read a little bit, but I'm curious. Yeah. So, and, and, and full, full, full disclaimer as well. The, the hike James is referring to, we're doing together. And the reason this has continued to come up is because the one other time I went to a 14,000 foot peak in Colorado, um, we got altitude sickness and it, we were fine, but it could have been bad. So I was like, no, we need to take this seriously. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. just to set the stage. Yeah. yeah. It, it's real. 
Yeah, exactly. And the times that I, I actually, I mentioned I pulled the, the trigger on the SOS on my inReach, it was all for altitude sickness for other people oh, who wow. were, were sick wow. and, and couldn't move. They couldn't move. I couldn't, I couldn't walk with them back down. They, they couldn't move. So really they said they couldn't, but who knows? But, uh, um, but yeah, so it, it's, it's a good question. And just so you know, I live at uh, zero altitude. I, I can look out my window and see the back bay here in Newport beach. So I have that uh, same Newport. problem, Yeah. Um, which is, which is fairly common. The, the best thing you can do is acclimatize. So, not, you don't always have that luxury, right, to spend three days hanging out at altitude, but um, they say, like, climb high and sleep low. So if you're going to do something like Mount Whitney, you could do a, a higher hike up to, like, Cottonwood Lakes, which is, oh, God, maybe, maybe the 10,000s up there. And then you come down to Lone Pine, which is lower than that, five, 6,000 feet, and you sleep, and then you go back up. That's That's the best thing you can do. And I've done um, a lot of the Eastern Sierra peaks uh, coming from here, from Southern California. And generally that's my play. I just, I'll go high, I'll hike, I'll come back down, sleep, and then go up. And I usually don't have a problem, but it is a bit of a crapshoot. You, you just don't know when it's going to hit you. And sometimes it hits me and I always take it seriously. And I'll usually, if I'm going up and I feel like a, a severe headache coming on, um, I'll just stop. I'll just stop and chill out, drink some water, and then I'll just wait 15 minutes. And if, I, if I'm feeling better, I'll keep going. I'll wait some more. And if it's just not getting better, I just go down. Yeah. Um, there's some kind of, I don't know what the saying is, and I'm butchering this, but there's something about like a good hike is not like reaching the summit. It's getting home. It's fair. Right. Um, so the, the old yeah. adage of... Uh, hike high, sleep low. Do, do you know what, like, where that comes from? Because it, in my mind, my thought would be, oh no, sleep high, because then you're acclimatizing while you're sleeping, which is easier. But yes, that's the opposite of the adage. Do you know, like, what the, I, I, I what don't, the intention of that is? I don't know the origin, but I always, I just assumed that the intention was you're letting your body, essentially recover from the altitude. Okay. But that could be totally, I have no idea. That was just an assumption I had made. I mean, it's, it's, it's ancient wisdom, so I, I believe it. I mean, the other thing is we recently were staying the night up at uh, uh, Mammoth Mountain mm -hmm. up, in the, up in the Sierras uh, skiing, and they had a lodge at 9,000 feet, and we got a horrible night's sleep, probably partially because of the altitude. You know, it was 9,000 yep. feet. It wasn't crazy, but that was the other thought that I had. It's just like getting a good night's sleep is probably helpful. Yeah. Um, Maybe I, that's part of it yeah. too, right? It's going lower for the sleep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I have another question for you before we move on to kind of the questions we ask everyone at the end. Um, and this is kind of a, a personal one for me. Um, you've spent a lot of time hiking out east, which I have as well. How do you compare the, the, the trails out east versus you know, the, the ones out west? Is there a difference there? Or are they kind of the same? Not the same. Um, east, definitely steeper, rockier, more gnarly um, in general. I think because of the fact that the trails out west, are, I think, are generally newer and have built been built by the CCC, like in the 30s, there's a lot more switchbacks, there's a lot more eased gradients, whereas back east, it's just sort of straight up the hill, you're walking over rocks. I mean, I, I've I've hiked sections of the Appalachian Trail in, in Pennsylvania where you're just walking across like slate that's like pointed st straight up and it just essentially like blades on your feet. And I think like, who built a trail over this? Like, this is insane. Um, I say we don't have, we don't have switchbacks out here much. No. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just a little more, I guess, groomed out here. And they're definitely, you know, you have high mountains out here, which is a whole other thing. Um, and, and you can hike. You can hike in the West Coast, like something like a cactus to clouds, restart essentially the the desert floor and the Palm Springs, and then you go up to Mount San Jacinto, and there's pine trees. Um, whereas on the East Coast, unless you're like in the Whites or something, it's always sort of the same topography. Like you're always yeah. like in the trees or in a certain place. Um, 
Yeah, I think the whites are the only place I can think off the top of my head. Maybe some place in the Adirondacks, like where you actually go past the, the, the tree line in Vermont, you know. Yeah, usually you have to get right to the top and there'll be a little bear spot or something, you know, a rock at the top without a tree. Yeah, yeah. I say, John, should we, we move on to the uh, the questions at the end? Well, let's at least get... There's the question that I always want to ask, but before we do that, uh, Chris, we always ask this question and we want to get your opinion on it. And this could be about like your expertise or just anything. But it's a two-part question. So number one, what gets you most excited about the future? And then number two, what actually gets you concerned about the future? Yeah, well, what gets me excited is um, it's not technology. It's it's the fact that uh, hopefully there will be more trails. There's definitely, we touched on earlier, there's more of an awareness of the outdoors. There's more of a usage of the outdoors. My hope is that um, that will lead to more protected public lands, more trails, uh, you know, and, and more awareness of the outdoors and the benefits of the outdoors. And that's part of why I do what I do. Um, you know, I, I want people to not look at the outdoors as a scary place. It's been hyped up by their local news. This is a place like where they're going to attacked by mountain lions and bears and everything where, you know, I, I want to take that out of the equation so you can go out and actually have fun. And you'd be surprised at the amount of emails I get asking me if there people are going to get attacked by a mountain lion. I mean, it's it's probably the number one thing or bears. Um, so so that that's what I get excited for. I hope the newer generation is is more into that. And it's you know it's a battle between the metaverse and social media and all these things like that. But uh, hopefully this will will you know become bigger as as the new generation comes up. I hope. Um, Do you think people are going to be taking hikes on their uh, on their metaverse of goggle set? If you can sell it, living room, yeah. <laughs> if you can sell it, it'll, yeah. it'll do it. Yeah, and there'll be ads in there too, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Some at Mount Whitney and go to Carl Juniors at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be an but uh, but th- but that's my hope, and I, I think technology can definitely aid in that. Um, you know, there's there's definitely tools, and I'm I'm going to do some upcoming guides on on what some things that people can do to help potentially advocate and get new trails made. But, you know, there's when, when people advocate for new trails, they, they need data to support it. Um, and now with, with essentially mobility data, right, people recording hikes on their GPS watches and their phones and all of this, there's an opportunity to share that data and provide data to the land management uh, groups uh, to actually provide them with hard data on trail usage. And that's really what you, you need, I think, to get more trails or get more funding for trails. So th- there are certain aspects, and my hope is what I get excited about is that this will get um, more funding and, and more attention, the, t- the attention that it deserves, I think. Um, in, in terms of what, what I, I fear or don't look forward to is, I mean, I think climate change is, is the main threat here and, and development. Um, it's just, you know, how many more strip malls do we need? Uh, it's just, it's just kind of depressing sometimes. And, and it's, 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 uh, frustrating slash confusing to think that there's still a debate about climate change going on in this country. Um, when all these things are happening, I mean, I can't go on a hike today in Southern California without seeing at least some area that's been damaged by fire in recent years. And I realize that's part of like the natural cycle of things, but there's obviously way more fires now than there was. I mean, there's, I have, I have old guidebooks that I read when I research hikes and they talk about forests on the, you know, pine forests and the hillside. And I mean, now you're lucky to find many, any pine forests around here. It's all desert scrub because it's all been burned. Um, so I, I think that's the, the, the thing that, that, uh, kind of scares me. Another thing we love to ask, um, Hopefully a little more uplifting, but <laughs> sorry. sorry, you know, uh, what advice would you give to a young person who's interested in doing what you do? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say just start hiking and get into the outdoors at first and just just share it however you feel is natural to start. Um, it's really about turning people on to the outdoors, especially as a alternative, an alternative to, um, you know, 
immersion in technology and social media and, and, you know, the metaverse and virtual reality and whatever comes next. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's easy to, it's easy to not really know the powers of being out in nature. I mean, we're, we're all talking here. We all hike. We, we know the restorative nature of, of being out in the outdoors. Who knows what, why it happens, but it definitely is a way to recharge the batteries, I think, for most people. Um, and I, I just hope that young people get turned on to that. And that's that becomes just like common knowledge where it's, it's definitely not now. Um, so that's that's what I would say is go for hikes, share it, get your friends out there. Um, and see where it goes from there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's one of those things where I, I think you mentioned this, but like I also didn't grow up hiking. I, I really. didn't either. I mean, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And then once I became an adult and started working, I was like, wow, I need to make time for this. Mm-hmm. And it's not always hiking. There's other things outdoors, but I, I never, I didn't realize the value of it until I started doing it as a, and saw how much better it was than being in my cubicle. Yeah. Um, well, it, I, mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, like, if you think about, you know, the evolution of man, we've been around for thousands and thousands of, of years of humans or humanoids, you know, and we've always lived off the lands really until the Industrial Revolution. Right. That's that's when things started changing. Mm-hmm. And it was obviously accelerated in the last hundred years or so. And there's been a move away from a connection. Right this connection that we had instinctually in our DNA for years and years as hunter gatherers and even as farmers, whatever it might be. Um, and now all of a sudden that's just totally out of the equation for most people. Most people get in their car, you know, they wake up, they watch TV, the news, they get in their car, they drive to work, drive back, maybe drive out to dinner and sit inside. There's, there's nothing. Um, and, and I, I think that has more of an effect than people realize. Definitely. One thing I feel like I need to get off my chest before we go to my favorite question is you talk about those people who emailed you uh, scared about mountain lions. I don't know that I was one of them, but there was a solid year where I was terrified of mountain lions because I read a story about someone who was attacked uh, while riding their bike. And I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. That's a large object. And you know, coming from the East Coast, we didn't have to worry about mountain lions. But anyway, I've moved yeah. past that now, partially with your help. Even in Maine, that's my <laughs> wife's biggest fear uh, while camping in the woods. Yeah. I, I just didn't realize until later in my life that we had, like, large, fearsome beasts like that in North America. And yeah. then I realized we did, and then life goes on. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out. Uh, anyway, our favorite question to ask typically one of the last Chris what is your favorite pizza topping okay the white so the answer is clams and specifically on the white clam pie what? that you get in uh, New England James you might be familiar with like the the old school brick oven pizza and I'm thinking about a place in New Haven I think it was called Frank Pepe's it's a real famous pizza place but they have a white clam pie with fresh clams that came out of the sounds and it's delicious I've I've never had that. Is it, a, is it a tomato sauce or a white sauce? No, white white sauce, uh, just just some garlic, olive oil, and, and fresh clams, and it is it is incredible. I I can't get that here, but if I'm in New Haven, I'll get it. Is there cheese? I think there's a little cheese. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been there. That all- that almost just sounds like another way to eat New England clam chowder, like a, <laughs> like clam chowder with a handle on it. It's a wicked, uh, wicked pizza. Wicked yeah. pizza. <laughs> I've never had that. I have to look for that somewhere. Yeah, I'm there's sure there's a famous awesome. like little Maine. Italy section in New Haven. I forget what it's. It's just like one avenue. There's two pizza places that are really old. I think it's one's called Sal's and one's called Pepe's. It's been a long time since I've been there. Um, but but th- that's that for for connoisseurs of pizza, I think that's considered one of the the, the creme de la creme of pizza. I, Otherwise, I, little known fact that well, New Haven, Connecticut's actually one of the epicenters of pizza in the nation. Little known fact, yeah. If you ever go yeah. there, um, there's a lot of really good pizza there. Arthur, not uh, Arthur Avenue. That's that's Bronx. It's 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 there's a name. There's like one little there's one little street where all the restaurants are in New Haven. Um. 
Well, the last question we'll ask, and I, we've kind of already answered it, but uh, Chris, if anyone has heard you talk and said, hey, I, where are these guides? I want to find them. I want to use them. Um, where can you point them to? How, or how can people follow you? Yeah, the easiest way is just to go to my website, which is hikingguy.com. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty poor about being active on social media because it's just, I'd rather do other things. Um, but I, I do post videos for all my guides and I post them on YouTube. And if you ever have any like questions or want to interact with me, the YouTube comments is probably the best place to do it. Um, Hmm. but, but yeah, I have Instagram and all of the, not all of them. I have Instagram, Instagram and, and YouTube are probably places to find me aside from the website no tiktok yet no tiktok (laughs) so you tiktok up on a mountain you'll end up on influencers in the wild or something (laughs) it's 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 amazing too because a lot of a lot of the times yeah i i review gear and when gear companies evaluate you as to whether you are worthy or not to get a free whatever it might be you know they look at your social following and and Right. I, I have, you know, I have a very good social following, but it's not as much as people who just go out and like post fancy pictures of themselves, you know, right. and don't really do anything. So, so I don't even I, try. For I that. would imagine a lot of your following is also, do you have a, I think you have an email newsletter, right? I do. Uh, yeah. I have an email you can sign okay. up for on the, on the website. I, I've tried to I get them on it monthly on that, but I, I usually do it about every two or three months and I'll just give everyone an update of, of what's been happening on the website i'm 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 generally pretty bad about promoting i'm better at like creating new guides which is obviously more fun i'm telling you google promotes for you i I search for these mountains it's at the top of the list thank you google (laughs) all right well that well that's all i got james anything else on your no i'm i'm good uh thanks so much for talking with us chris we just reached out and was like maybe he'll talk with us and and you did i appreciate that yeah, I, I, I appreciate you reaching out and, and, and it was great talking to you guys and I can talk uh, I can talk hiking whenever you want, so I love it. Well we we appreciate it and thanks again and uh, talk to you later. Thank you. See ya.